The Difficult Dialogues podcast was created for Ursuline College's special topics English course titled From Rust Belt to Revival, exploring the legacy of segregation, inequality, and social justice through the lens of the Annisfield Wolf canon. This literature course, taught by Dr. Katherine Trostel, focuses on books awarded the Annisfield Wolf Award, as well as social issues affecting the Rust Belt city of Cleveland, where the award is given. With all that said, this podcast is hosted by Ashley Seraglio, senior English major, and Rebecca Hardy, sophomore psychology, education, and history major at Ursuline College. Thank you for tuning in to Difficult Dialogues. I'm Ashley, and with me is Rebecca. Becca, say hello. Hello. In today's episode, we'll be looking at redlining, what it is, what it did, and what it continues to do in our area of Cleveland. But to talk about redlining, we need to understand how it started. Redlining was a practice that began back in the 1930s to increase segregation in neighborhoods and was primarily employed by insurance companies and realtors to keep African-Americans and whites separated within communities. A 2017 paper from a journal called Democracy and Education explains that because of the way democracy was founded in the United States, racial segregation practices like redlining were made infinitely easier to achieve. It was even to the point that the author of that article called it the death of democracy because of the horrific traits that came out of America's legislation. As we well know, we have a history of slavery here in the States that is disturbing to most. And because of that, the legislation that we founded our country on has negative connotations towards people of color and minorities in general. The article explains that prior to the 30s, it was almost impossible to own housing due to how expensive it was. The Federal Housing Administration, or FHA, made it possible for the average American to purchase a home. However, as the article says, quote, FHA also created a rating system that assessed the risk level of financially investing in neighborhoods based upon the racial composition of those areas, end quote. If a neighborhood was risky, it was given the color red on the rating system, which is where we get the term redlining from. The authors state quite clearly here that despite such amazing victories as the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and the Fair Housing Act of 1968, quote, residential segregation persists and has grown in many cases, end quote. We can still see it daily in the communities we live in and in population maps that we observe. The 2014 article, Do Maps Make Geography, looks carefully at how maps influence our views of not only the geography of the area, but also the quality of the area and the people that live there. To quote the author, quote, maps are not only representations of the world, they also have the ability to change the way we think about and act upon places depicted in those maps, end quote. He explains that maps are both prescriptive and descriptive, meaning that although they do just tell you about the place, they also dictate how you act around the places because of those descriptions. America has allowed maps to inform us about the quality of a given place, and because of racially segregated methods like redlining, those maps usually give us an extremely racist view of the world. So, what does redlining look like on a physical basis? Back in the 30s, when realtors were drawing up maps and looking at communities and the buyers, they created what's known as a redlining map. These maps were broken into sections based on a color code, usually with green, yellow, and red. Green neighborhoods were the best ones to live in, of course, aka the most pure white communities. The yellow neighborhoods were a mixture, not completely white and not completely black either. Not the best neighborhood and not the worst. The red neighborhoods were the mostly black ones, and as we explained earlier, were marked red to signify higher risk of financial investment. 
Realtors would scare their white buyers and sellers into selling their homes to black families and then fleeing the area to buy a home in a more green neighborhood. This was known as white flight and was and still is a prominent part of redlining. White realtors made a substantial amount of money through this practice as they were the ones being contacted for the selling and purchasing of homes in this flight. The article Redlining Myths and Realities explains that the lack of minority representation in workplaces like insurance and real estate is what helped cause the issue back in the 30s and helps perpetuate it now. In 1968, however, the Fair Housing Act was written and included in the Civil Rights Act. The Fair Housing Act made it illegal to discriminate against people buying homes, applying for mortgages, or trying to receive federally funded housing. Once this became law, everyone lived happily ever after and racism was no more, right? Absolutely not. The effects of modern day racism and the legacy of redlining still affect how people are housed how our neighborhoods are segregated, and even things like internet access and healthcare are being affected. Location often dictates what you have access to, and unfortunately for people stuck in lower income neighborhoods, this is nothing new. Simple things like access to healthy foods or to local well-funded and safe libraries are difficult to achieve. This limits who is able to move out of the neighborhood, move in, and at what cost. William J. Wilson in his article, The Political and Economic Forces Shaping Concentrated Poverty, lists off some of the most well-understood problems associated with poverty. Joblessness, crime, delinquency, drug trafficking, broken families, and dysfunctional schools, just to name a few. He identifies redlining as one of the first political forces to segregate cities and bring forth concentrated poverty. However, once it was outlawed, policy decisions still made it difficult for African Americans to escape the poverty that had been created by depreciating home values. He states, quote, subsequent policy decisions worked to trap blacks in increasingly unattractive inner cities, end quote. By building freeways through poor black neighborhoods, the value of their homes decreased further. Many wealthy white neighborhoods literally walled themselves off from poorer black neighborhoods. Shaker, for example, created road barricades to prevent African-American suburban migration. And explicit financial policies deliberately diverted money away from black neighborhoods and towards white neighborhoods. Policy decisions continue to be made. What's unfortunate, though, is that the World Wide Web, a great equalizer, is a reflection of our society. What should be fixing problems like redlining is accidentally making them worse. James Allen in The Color of Algorithms shows that it's not just terrible real estate agents continuing these practices. It's also websites. Website algorithms read our data. Every time we click and every time we don't becomes important data for the algorithm to sort through. The housing website Zillow, for example, literally allows you to draw circles around what neighborhoods you'd like to search in and which ones you don't. It sounds innocent enough, but every time someone draws a circle leaving out one neighborhood due to preconceived racial notions, the website makes a mark. The next time someone just searches Cleveland without drawing circles, the algorithm remembers that person leaving out that neighborhood and shows those listings last. But this is on a larger scale than we can even imagine. Data like how much we're willing to pay, what sort of amenities we're looking for, how good the local schools are rated, and how long houses have been on the market are all affected by redlining. A listing, however, that's poor on all of these fronts will be shown last for users, perpetuating redlining. We wish that was it, though. It's not just what's on the internet that is determined and perpetuated by redlining. It's the internet itself. Internet access, even as we enter the new decade, is an issue for the impoverished. It was just in 2017 that AT&T was accused of providing worse and slower internet to low-income neighborhoods in Cleveland. 
This was despite having them pay the same amount that wealthier families would pay for better service. This might not sound so bad. After all, how bad can internet speeds get? At their highest speed, low-income Clevelanders receive speeds of 3 megabits per second. It would take a 3-minute song 11 minutes to download. At just 10 megabits per second, it can be faster to download the song than listen to it. And it would cost the same amount in different neighborhoods, despite being entirely different speeds. To say that this wouldn't affect someone's life would be ridiculous. It would take someone 9 hours to download 2 hours worth of video. Then anyone whose jobs work with video won't live there. If it's impossible to stream without having poor quality video, then anyone who streams or needs to video chat as part of their job won't live there. Businesses who rely on internet won't set up there, which continues to set these areas up for failure. People who may have wanted to get better jobs away from the area can't because they don't have the resources to do so. As we move into the digital age, what does it say that some places are being predetermined to not be suitable for digital businesses? What will these digitally redlined areas do when the economy is almost entirely digital? And that's what we're left to wonder. Redlining affected us, and we still let it affect us. Is there any fixing it, or are we just left to accept what we've created? It's denial to ignore our reality, and ridiculous to at least not try and fix it. Some people choose to ignore the clear racial aspects of poverty. And acting like it's purely economic allows these systems to continue. People who want to ignore the realities of racism in America say that neighborhood decline is natural. Those who pay attention to the world will see our maps, our legislation, and our algorithms for what they are, enablers of racial segregation in this country. And with that, we'll wrap up today's episode of Difficult Dialogues. Thank you for choosing to listen to our podcast. Join us next time for the follow-up episode where we look at ways to begin fixing redlining in Cleveland. And remember, you don't have to be scared of difficult topics, just respectful of them.